One of the advantages of wearing a mask is nobody knows whether you're singing or not, provided you keep your voice down. I'm not going to tell you whether I was singing or not, but I did get an elbow in the ribs when I was sitting down in the congregation. Let's pray. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. In addition to the, the reading from chapter 2 that we had earlier in the service, a couple of short readings which will be referred to in the course of our sermon this morning. The first is in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, uh, just th three verses. The Lord Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, two verses, verse 7, Peter writes, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth or of greater value or greater preciousness, than gold, is of greater preciousness than gold. And 19, verse 19, for you know that it was not with the perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, without blemish or defect. These verses plus the Chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, really form the basis of our study this morning. And I would begin by saying, what is precious to us? Is it jewelry? It's never been my fondness. Family? Yes. A motor car? Mm -hmm. A Swiss watch? I've never had one. Uh, an heirloom, perhaps. A job? Well, that's all behind me now. A pension? Yes, I value it highly. Health? Yes. Books? Oh, yes. The list is probably endless and may vary from person to person, depending who we are, where we live, <coughs> and everything else. Now, in the Old Testament, the NIV translation, the word precious occurs numerous times, usually associated with objects uh, such as metals and stones or qualities such as wisdom. And there are references to God's word being precious, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. And there are two references at least to life being precious and one reference to death, the death of the saints being precious. And one reference to the lives of believers being precious and at least one to a man's smile being precious. In Isaiah chapter 43, 
verse 4, and that's a great chapter, greatly valued in our household. Uh, Isaiah chapter 43 at verse 4, we read that God says of his people, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Now, after all that, strange as it may sound to us, the word precious occurs in only three New Testament books. These are First uh, and Second Peter and the book of Revelation. There are over 138,000 words in the New Testament, and the word precious occurs only 11 times. Now, does that mean that precious is not important in the New Testament because there are so few references to it? Well, actually, I'm going to argue the opposite being the case. Let, let me give an example of this. A former English teacher of mine in his retirement took up buying and selling antiquarian books from his house, and usually at quite a handsome profit. Taking me into the inner sanctum of his then home, he showed me a particular book that was in almost pristine condition. He assured me that there were only 10 copies left in the whole world, and from his point of view, the best thing that could happen, as far as he was concerned, would be for fires to break out in the places where the other nine books were. In that case, his book, the sole surviving one, would become so precious as to be priceless. Scarcity usually increases value. And this morning, I want us to take up this scarcely used word in the New Testament, precious, as it is developed in the first two chapters of First Peter. In verse, chapter 1, verse 7, we read that your believer's faith in Jesus is precious. Verse 19, the blood of Jesus is precious. In chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus is precious to God. In chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus is precious to believers. And we'll examine each of these in turn and note carefully that in the, uh, the Greek text, and I know there are some native Greek speakers here, the Greek New Testament, the same word is used in each case, though it is translated as more valuable or more worth or whatever, and the word is timeo. Am I, my pronunciation right? Thank you. The word is timeo. Now, in chapter 1, verse 7, your, that's the believer's faith, in Jesus is precious. Uh, the grief and trials that Christians uh, Peter wrote to were about to suffer were not to be feared, no matter how extensive they may turn out to be, even fiery trials, literally. <coughs> Why? Because these trials will not destroy their faith, but to refine it into greater purity. All that will be destroyed is the dross and the impurities. I'm sure we've all heard the story, this is not an original illustration, about a goldsmith who was melting down a gold nugget to purify it before making a piece of jewelry out of it. He had it in the crucible over the fire and was gradually increasing the heat to great intensity. 
And he was asked, how do you know when it's pure enough? And his answer, when I see my face reflected in the surface, then I'll know it's of the standard of purity required. When we see the face of Jesus reflected in our lives, friends, that's when we'll know we've reached the standard of purity. And that's how we should see every test and trial of our faith, however uncomfortable and unpleasant these may be. Satan may make use of these experiences to try to destroy us, but God, and it's God who's in control, not Satan, God's will shall prevail. Rather, God uses these to purify us, to purify our faith, to improve the quality of the trust we have in him. For one of the essential ingredients of faith is trust, and we'll return to this later. Remember, our faith in Christ is not something we have worked up ourselves. Such faith is not man-made, it's not synthetic, (coughs) it is a gift of God from us. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, we are told our faith is the gift of God. It's God given to us. This is the faith that is more precious than gold. Now, ultimately, gold as we know it will perish in the final fire of God's judgment of the world, including precious stones and metals, not just the wood and the straw in one sense. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, we read, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. We have God's word for it. It is this promise to us that our faith, which is his gift to us, is more precious than gold. Then in chapter 1, verse 19, excuse me just a second, we read, the blood of Jesus is precious. How did God go about making us, we who are ruined sinners, into his own people? In eternity, he chose us in Christ, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. But in time, he has redeemed us by something tangible, something special, something exceedingly valuable, indeed something infinitely precious. (coughs) Central to God's plan and purpose for our salvation in time and eternity is his son Jesus, for there is no salvation without him. And central to Christ's saving work is the cross, For here is Calvary, here is sacrifice, here is satisfaction for divine justice, here is penalty paid for human sin, here is punishment endured for our rebellion, and here is pardon procured for sinners such as ourselves. Here we see Jesus on the cross. We see the Savior lifted up on a wooden gibbet, and he hangs between heaven and earth, and his blood flows for our full redemption. And God decreed that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. None of the blood of the animal sacrifices in the tabernacle or the temple could ever pay for our sins. Only the blood of Christ can do so, and has done so in full and final and in unrepeatable sacrifice at the cross of Calvary. 
Only the precious blood of Christ shed for us can reconcile us to God in time and eternity. Here are the words of a a lovely hymn expressing these great truths. What mighty sum paid all my debt when I a bondman stood and has my soul at freedom set? Tis Jesus' precious blood. But you may ask, how is this possible? Why Jesus' blood? Why not my own blood? Why not the blood of the martyrs? Why is it only (coughs) through Jesus' blood? Well, let's take up the story now as it develops in chapter 2. It's because, verse 4, Jesus is precious to God. When Jesus came to this world, the master builders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and the priests and the high priests, the religious experts, all undervalued and therefore rejected Jesus as being worthless, third-rate, flawed, building material, not fit for inclusion in their religious enterprises, the people who should have known better judged Christ and judged him wrongly. They rejected him as worthless, but the error, the flaw, was not in Christ, but in themselves. See what it says here about God's evaluation of Jesus. He is chosen and precious. How could he be anything other since he was and is and ever shall be (coughs) the sinless son of the all-holy God? Now, since that is how God values Christ, then we must do the same. The Lord Jesus said in John 5, 23, we're to put the same value on the son as on the father. He said, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. To do less is to reject the Father's testimony about his Son, Jesus. If we do not acknowledge Jesus and evaluate him as the Father does, then we won't acknowledge God either. No matter how religious we profess to be. Look at the prophecy and promise of the Old Testament that's quoted in in verse 6. See, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Here Christ is prophesied, and here we are promised. Christ is prophesied as the cornerstone, the one who holds everything else together. And without him, there is but one monumental collapse. But with him, there is the promise. Joined to Christ, we will never be put to shame. That is meaning in the sense of being eternally lost. Verse 7, Jesus is precious to believers. This is the whole point of the parable of the pearl of greatest price. In the eyes of the experienced pearl merchant, it's not as if this one was better than the average pearl or even the best that he'd seen for years. Rather, it was so good, so perfect, so flawless, so beautiful, 
so precious that he considered it worth more than his entire lifetime's collection of pearls put together. So he sold a lot in order to purchase this one for himself. Think about this for a moment. Both the pearl merchant and the man working in the field, what was it they both did when they found the treasure? Firstly, they recognized the value of what they found. Secondly, they determined to have it. Thirdly, they sold everything they had in order to make the purchase. And fourthly, they they personally acquired the treasure. Now, having recognized the value of their discovery and sold all that they had in their desire to possess it, the man in the field who discovered the buried treasure and the merchant in the market who saw the pearl each made their purchase. That is, they acquired that which they had set their heart's desire to obtain and possess. This tells us of individual appropriation. It tells us that salvation is not simply seeing the value of Christ and his work, but personally desiring it as well. Christ must become ours by faith, which is the God-given means of appropriation. There are three elements, important elements, in saving faith. One is the intellectual element, which, in which we recognize the truth of the gospel, recognizing the value of Christ as Savior. Second element is the emotion of the heart, when we experience ourselves drawn to what we recognize. We are attracted to Christ as our Redeemer. And third element is the involvement of the will in which we make an actual commitment to Christ, trusting him who is presented to us in the gospel. And this is a very personal matter. Christ is precious to believers. We come to faith in Christ one by one. As God's, by God's grace, we recognize our need of Jesus, trusting that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and that he did what he claimed to do, provide salvation for us through his death and resurrection on our behalf. As the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce (coughs) so succinctly put it, the merchant did not form a, a cooperative to acquire the pearl of greatest price. He, like the man in the field, made the purchase for himself. Don't think if you're balancing, hovering on the brink of decision that having renounced everything for Jesus, you will one day find yourself disappointed with what might have proved to be a bad bargain. You will not find yourself returning with your peril asking for your money back when you find Jesus, friends. In the exchange described in the parables, the, man who made their, the men who made their purchases received a bargain. They made the deal of their lives and were happy. And so it is with everyone who trusts in this precious Jesus. In Christ, we are not called to poverty, but to the greatest spiritual wealth in heaven. In Christ, we are not called to disappointment, but to everlasting fulfillment. 
In Christ we are not called to sorrow, but to eternal joy. The hymn based on some of Samuel Rutherford's letters expresses it like this. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep (coughs) sweet well of love, the streams on earth I've tasted. More deep I'll drink above, there to an ocean's fullness. His mercy will expand with glory, glory dwelling in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his nail-pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Or perhaps you're more familiar with, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. This must be the testimony of every Christian. It must be the profession of every church member. It must be central to the expression of genuine faith. Let's go back to uh, the, uh, the parable, uh, back to John chapter 5, where the Lord Jesus spoke about valuing, valuing the Son as the Father. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Do we value Christ as we value the Father? That is, putting, treating them of equal value. We must do so if our faith is biblical, informed, truthful, and genuine. To give an inferior status to Jesus is to go contrary to the evaluation of God. Now, I occasionally like to go to auction sales. I rarely have ever buy anything, but I find them highly entertaining. I've actually seen some members of this church at an auction sale, but I'll not tell you any more about that. Just imagine we're in an auction and with plenty of money. Two identical Ming Dynasty vases in pristine condition. They can have only, only have equal value. Now, in the auction sale, it is utterly absurd to bid up to one million pound for one and then to expect to buy the other one for five pounds. Here we must make comment on the fact that Christ is ever a divider for men. Yes, of course, he's the great unifier. He unites us to God by his work of salvation on our behalf. But he's also, in a sense, the divider. Excuse me. That is, he is the one over whom the whole human race ultimately is divided because we're either for him or against him. Either he is this precious stone that's referred to here or else he's the stone of offense that causes men to stumble. And this is the difference between true and false religion. The followers of all religions, even though some may claim to be Christian, but who evaluate Jesus less than the Father, They stumble and fall here. The nominal church member who thinks that his or her own self-righteousness will merit enough to get them into God's good books stumble and fall here. All who in one form or another do not value Jesus as they claim they value the Father 
stumble and fall here. Now, I'd like us to draw this together. Since all our salvation is tied together with Christ, then we must seek to become the sort of people Christ wants us to be. Hence, our sanctification, that is, being set apart from the rebellious world, is negatively, verse 1, rid yourselves of the dross of our lives. Positively, verse 2, feed properly the milk of God's Word and the Lord Himself. Dear friends, be warned, the Christ-rejecting world is heading for disaster. But over against that, we read here, true Christians are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's people. Pause for a moment. Think about this. Some people are said to suffer from feelings of inferiority, inadequacy, and low self-esteem. You've probably seen this on some of these emails that go around, church notices. Uh, The low self-esteem support group meets in the hall on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Please enter by the side door. Well, we can laugh at that. But when we look at the status that has been graciously conferred upon us by God in Christ, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's people, that's us. How much more valuable that is, and important that is, than any idea of self-esteem, quite frankly. We look not to ourselves, but to Jesus. We cannot get a higher or richer or more enduring status than that which we have here in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take God at his word and believe what he says about us. And what's our purpose here? Not in order that we may become proud, conceited, arrogant, boastful, rather that this should humble us and it should take the focus away from ourselves and fix it on Christ. Here is the purpose for us. Verse 9. What are we here for? To declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is first and foremost worship. It's worship because by declaring his praises, we are engaged in a mighty declaration of God in the greatness, the goodness, the grandness, and the grace of God's being and all his work for salvation for us in the Lord Jesus. By declaring his praises, we are adoring God in all his qualities as revealed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, bringing about our everlasting salvation. But it's also work, that is, our work. Uh, That's a real vocation from which no Christian need ever fear receiving a redundancy notice or put on furlough or rendered unemployed. Our work, whoever we are, if we profess the name of Jesus, is about telling people about Jesus, our Savior. This is our testimony. What do we most boast about? Ourselves, our families, our church, our congregation, our denomination? 
Surely it must be our Saviour. Our mission is to make Christ known to the world as the only but wholly adequate Saviour and urge people, implore people to put their trust in him. Now, given the astonishing nature and measure of God's grace to us in Christ, then what else can we possibly do but declare his praises, both to God in worship and to others in witness? How then, as Christ's people, do we live in this world, in this present evil age, this hostile environment? Verses 11 and 12 tell us, Plenty work for all of us to do and be getting on with. Live such good lives among the pagans or the Gentiles that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. There's something very practical about this. This is street level or marketplace sanctification. That's how we are to live, consistent, Christ-honoring, neighbor-loving lives. And even if falsely accused of wrongdoing, we are not to despair. Yes, it can be upsetting and very unsettling for us to be falsely accused of wrongdoing. It may be very tiresome and tedious for us if we're in that situation, but we are not to despair. Our vindication lies in the hands of our loving Heavenly Father. But meanwhile, we are to continue to do good, to live uprightly, to be Christ-honoring in our behavior, so that this promise may be fulfilled. Look at the promise. Your neighbors, the unbelievers, those who accuse you falsely, will see your good deeds and glorify God. Not glorify us, but glorify God. Finally, therefore, this is surely the great social end for which we should all strive with our lives. That our godless neighbors and work colleagues, etc., who may mock and scoff and accuse of all so- us of all sorts of wrongdoing, will by our very lifestyles end up giving glory to God. Amen, and may God bless to us the preaching of his word, and may this be true for each one of us.